Tēnā koutou no mai, hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, Chris Hipkins' vision for Aotearoa. Congratulations, Prime Minister Hipkins. His first Q&A interview since becoming New Zealand's Prime Minister. Then, a Q&A exclusive. An international and super rugby star speaks out about abuse at one of New Zealand's oldest schools. I do not condone any of that. You know, the, the, the abuse, the, the military style, you know, the brutal beatings. We'll have that interview for you shortly, but first, as the former Minister for the COVID-19 response, Chris Hipkins knows a crisis. The seven weeks since he became Prime Minister have seen his government largely in response mode, with widespread flooding in our biggest city and widespread cyclone damage across multiple regions. The Prime Minister grants Q&A two interviews a year, and this is our first for 2023. Te Premier Chris Hipkins, tēnā koe. welcome to Q&A. Kia ora. I want to start this interview by focusing on the crisis response. You have spent a lot of time touring the affected regions over the last few weeks. Tell me about an image or a memory of the damage that really brought home to you the human cost of these disasters. When you see the images on the news or in the paper, it, it shows just the scale of the damage. But when you see it up close, it's even more compelling. <laughs> um, going and visiting the orchardists, for example, seeing that silt piled up so high, um, seeing cars in the tops of trees that have been washed there by the water, mm. um, that really kind of brings home just the force of the water, the force of what they dealt with. Um, and... You know, even speaking to people, I haven't spoken to people directly who were on rooftops, but I certainly spoke to people who were fishing people off rooftops. Mm. Um, what a traumatic, you know, um, set of events to be part of. I want to focus on some of your policies of the last few weeks. I've got a really simple question. Do you accept your decision to extend the fuel excise tax cut for a fourth time will lead to greater greenhouse gas emissions? I think in, in most cases, this is these you know people will be filling up their cars, driving to work, driving their kids to school anyway. Um, we clearly have to continue to work to reduce our our greenhouse gas yeah. emissions, and transport is a huge contributor to that. But. Um, forcing people to pay higher prices for fuel that they have no choice mm. but to buy isn't going to be the way that we're going to do that. I'm, I'm really proud to be part of a government that we've seen. We're one of the fastest um, countries in the world to uptake electric vehicles. Um, there's more that we can do in that area. They, these are the things that will help to bring our greenhouse gas emissions down. That doesn't answer the question. Do you accept that your decision to extend the fuel excise tax cut for a fourth time will lead to an increase in greenhouse gas emissions? Not necessarily, because well, people, why not? Well, because people would be doing that driving anyway. They right. would they would be covering that distance anyway. This just means that they're paying a slightly lower cost. Do you for have it. official advice to that extent? No, no. Did you seek any official advice as to the greenhouse gas emissions effect of that policy extension? Uh, from memory, there was there was almost certainly some advice, uh, you know, of, on the of the implications in the paper. I can't remember exactly what it was off the top of my head. You didn't you didn't personally ask anyone, any officials anywhere, what will be the effect on our emissions profile by extending this? Oh, well, as I've said, um, you know, if you're a mum and dad driving your kids to school, Not what I asked. you're going to be doing it anyway, regardless yeah. of the price of fuel. This is going to ease some of the burden on the on on your family. That was the primary driver of the of the discount. Mm. That doesn't mean that we're not focused on lowering our green house gas emissions, of course we've got to continue to do that. Mm. You will have seen some of my interviews in the past, you know that when people don't answer the question, <laughs> I come back to it. Uh, uh, you didn't specifically seek advice from officials, 
as to the effect on our emissions from extending that policy. As I said, no, that was right. not the driver behind that policy. Are you aware there was a Cabinet paper in June of last year as to uh, the greenhouse gas emissions impact from extending the fuel excise tax? Ah, well, I was a member of Cabinet at the time, so I would have almost certainly seen it at the time. So you say that it won't have any effect on greenhouse gas emissions. That's not what your officials told, uh, told Cabinet. They said it would lead to a 1% to 2% increase in vehicle kilometres by having that excise tax cut in place. And that amounts to between 10,000 and 20,000 tonnes of additional emissions per month. When you look at it, though, and you, and you look at you know what are we talking about here, mm. uh, we're potentially talking about families not being able to to, to travel those distances mm. because they can't afford to put fuel in their mm. cars. Um, that is not the way that we're going to bring out bring our overall greenhouse gas, gas emissions down in a sustainable way. Do you accept? that greater carbon emissions will lead to more frequent and severe weather events like the ones we've witnessed absolutely. this year. You yes. do. Yes, right. absolutely. Right, so what does it say about Chris Hipkins' leadership that days after the worst flooding event in our biggest city in history, you introduced a policy that will ultimately make these kind of events worse? Um, as I've said, our, our drive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is, is undiminished. Um, this is dealing with a very much a here and now mm. challenge right in front of New Zealanders, which is the cost of living that they're so facing. So the cost of living the crisis is a greater crisis than the climate crisis. No, not at all. But well, that's what but you've, you've prioritised. No, 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 I don't think that's a fair characterisation of it. I'm saying that there are other ways that we can bring our greenhouse mm. gas emissions down than simply hiking up the price of fuel. There are there are other things that we can do. Mm. As, as I've indicated, you know, our acceleration of electric vehicle uptake that's making a difference. Of course, you know, mm. other things we can do. We've also um, increased or extended the half-price subsidies for public transport. Mm. These things can also make a difference. And so what impact will that extension on the half-price public transport have on emissions? Um, as I said, I, I can't recall the exact figures off the top of my Good head. Good news is that I've looked up that Cabinet yeah. paper once again. They say that it's going to have a minimal effect. Well, well your, your ministers actually, Michael Woods and Megan Woods, both said officials consider the impact of half-price public transport on emissions is likely to be minimal. Yeah, it ultimately depends on the overall level of uptake and whether you get some mode shift from that's those. The, that's the advice but, from your ministers. And some of the, the mode shift that we're talking mm. about is not going to happen overnight. Mm. When, you, when you want to get people out of cars and into public transport, those things don't happen overnight. But do, you, like do you disagree with that sentiment? Things like half-price public transport point the way to you know a mode shift that we can achieve in the future. I just think it's a remarkable piece of leadership, is it not? That, that four or five days after a weather event unprecedented in our biggest city, you have extended a policy that will ultimately make these kind of events worse. Um, ultimately, our, our commitment to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, as mm. I've said, is undiminished. But uh, I, I don't accept that increasing mm. the price that families pay every time they fill up the car is going to be the best way for us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions Ten, overall. 10,000 to 20,000 tonnes of emissions per month. That's significant. Significant is the word that your officials has used. Yeah, but there are there are a lot of things that we can do to reduce mm. our greenhouse gas emissions. And as I've said, I, I don't accept that this is one of them. What role did the election play in your decision to extend that tax cut? Which election? The, the forthcoming the general election? election? Yeah. Look, we've only extended it through at this point until June. Mm. Uh, we've got decisions to make in the budget about what the overall future plans are around that. But I think the thing that played the biggest impact was you know, the overall costs that families are facing at the moment. Their costs have gone mm. up a lot um, and we have to acknowledge that, that some mm. families are finding it really hard to make ends meet at the moment. OK, but you're saying that actually the election in October didn't play any role in that, in that decision? No.
80% of the public, according to polling, surprise, surprise, want the tax cut to continue. Of course that's the case, right? No one's, no one's surprised by that. It just hardly seems credible, does it, that in an election year, your decision to extend it for a fourth time, when previously your own ministers have talked about extending it, in fact, Grant Robertson uh, introduced a tapered scheme before you took Prime Minister, ultimately you have prioritised, in the eyes of some, re-election and a popular policy over the future. No, not at all. Inflation has stayed higher for longer. So if you look at our inflationary numbers, we made some decisions late last year around tapering out the fuel, um, uh, you know, the, the discount on the fuel tax uh, at a time when we were expecting inflation to taper off at a similar, mm. you know, at, at a similar time. It, it didn't. It stayed higher for longer. Mm. And so we have to we have to respond to that. We have to acknowledge that, um, you know, we have to help families through this. Well, climate events play a significant role in inflation as well. Uh, certainly they do, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's worth considering, surely? Uh, well, I don't think any of the weather events that we've had in the last mm. uh, few day, few weeks uh, would have uh, been affected by the decision that we took as a government to, um, to continue with the fuel tax subsidies or the fuel tax reductions for a little bit longer. But that is exactly the kind of attitude that has led to these kind of events. Is it not? Uh, look, I think over time there are many opportunities that mm. we've had as a country to reduce our emissions and we've not taken them. There are certainly other things that we can mm. do um, to continue to really hone in on that. But, but take me back to that first thought, that the, the thought of those people, those rescuers, plucking people off rooftops because the waters were so high that they were fearing for their life and were maybe just a couple of feet from losing their lives. Go forward 5, 10, 15 years... This kind of policy, the decision that you have made to continue emitting 10,000 to 20,000 tonnes of emissions per month will lead to an increased severity of these kind of weather events. Oh, and look at the helicopters plucking those people off roofs were um, emitting an awful lot of carbon as, at the same time they were doing that. I wouldn't say that they shouldn't do it because, um, because it was contributing to Are climate change. Are you seriously change. comparing helicopters rescuing people off rooftops to I'm saying we use, we use, me filling up I'm saying my Toyota we, Corolla? We, we use fuel in a, in a variety of ways that mm. we have to accept at the moment. That, that, that is the main way we are, we are doing things. It's not a reasonable comparison we need to transition. We need to transition. Mm. Um, I think that you know, getting more people into ele electric vehicles is one of the things we can do. Mm. Switching coal boilers into sustainable boilers. We've, we've been doing a lot of those right. sorts of things. These are things we can do to reduce our emissions. Making sure we're using more renewable mm. electricity um, so that when you do plug in your electric mm. vehicle, it's coming from a sustainable source. These are all things that are you know, areas of focus for us. Sure. Now, you have some emission targets that you have to hit by 2025. So under the legislation introduced by Labor, New Zealand is still required to hit those targets. If you have increased the fuel excise tax cut or extended it, you have reprioritised our transport strategy, how will you make up the gap? Oh, well, we're working through that process at the moment. Um, there are but at the moment you don't have well, No, but there are a range of things we can do. So if you look at the, um, the work that we're doing into reducing mm. government emissions and, support, and government supporting industry to reduce emissions, mm. we, there's actually more that we can do in that area. So we have to look at the overall emissions picture. Now, transport is a big emitter, mm. no question about that. The uptake of new technology in the transport space provides some real opportunity for mm. us. Potential, you know, the potential for hydrogen is quite big for New Zealand, and we're continuing to explore how quickly we could, mm. you know, we can uptake that new technology. There is a lot that we're doing, and a lot more we can do. Should the owners of red and yellow stickered houses who cannot return to their houses receive compensation for the full value of their land? 
we have to work through this on a principal basis. Now, I want to be clear, we haven't made decisions about who's going to be compensated for what, and it will take us some time to work through that and to make sure that we've got a clear and transparent and mm. fair criteria for how people are treated. To, to give you a comparison, after the September earthquake in 2010, mm. um, the red zoning decisions and the decisions around that were taken in around July the mm. following year. We've still, there's a still a lot we don't know. We've still got to get the geotechnical advice on, mm. the, on the land and what the future of that land is. Um, we've also got to make sure that we're being consistent across the country. So if someone's house is at the top of a slip and we're, you know, we're offering them compensation, then we'd have to offer that compensation mm. to someone in another part of the country who's mm. faced the same thing but in a more localised event. So we've just got to make sure that we're, we're being very clear and, and transparent in how we're doing that. Right. At the moment, though, you don't have a position as to whether or not those homeowners should receive compensation for the full value of their land. Look, as I've said, we've got to work through a process right. to make sure that what... Because there's a question of who, who provides the yeah, compensation yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't, I'm not expecting you to have the exact percentage breakdown, whether yeah. it's central government, local government, insurance companies, banks, etc. But I, I'm interested in that, that central principle, should they get full compensation for the value of their land? Well, look, in an ideal world, yes. But we've, there's still a lot that you've got to work okay. through about who pays and in what conditions and um, what circumstances, I should say. One person who won't be involved in the decisions is your climate change minister. Even though James Shaw is handling the long-term managed retreat policy, he is not in the storm response task force because he's not a member of cabinet, he's not in the cabinet committee that will ultimately decide. Is that a mistake? Oh, James Shaw is also not a, a member of the Cabinet Environment um, Committee and yet he attends almost every one of the meetings because he'll attend when the subject matter is relevant mm. to his portfolio, which in this case is going to be quite frequently. Given the urgency of the crisis, shouldn't your climate change minister be in Cabinet? Well, it's just a, a nature of the, the uh, arrangement that we have with the, the Green Party, the support arrangement. They're not full members of the government. But James Shaw or Madame um, Davidson, when it's mm. relevant, they will attend the, the relevant meetings. When, when, and when we're discussing these matters, of course, I fully expect James Shaw to be fully engaged in it. In the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle, we on Q&A focused on the fragility of the telecommunications network. I think some people were surprised how quickly the cell phone networks went down. Of course, many of the cell towers only had battery power to last about four hours after that disaster. I realise that those are privately owned companies, but you do have the power to regulate. Is that something you're considering? I think the first thing we'd like to do is work with the industry to make sure we've got a sustainable solution here. Now, if we can do that by working with industry, then we mm. absolutely would prefer to do it that way. If we can't, then, of course, regula regulation remains a backstop for us. Clearly, we need to build more resilience into the communications network. But I think we've also learned a little bit more about how we can be better prepared for these types of events. So Starlinks mm. proved to be a lifeline for communities and we can actually make sure that we've got a, a better mechanism to deploy those really quickly, mm. uh, much faster, into those communities that need them. So I think we need to do all of those things. Do, do you have any advice at the moment as to what would be an appropriate length of time for cell phone towers to last on battery power in the event where they lose mains power? I wouldn't necessarily want to put a hard number on that. Clearly we want to prolong that as long as we can. Mm. In some cases it wasn't just the battery life mm. though, it was also that the broadband connection um, went out. So yeah. if you look at Gisborne for example they've got a connection comes in from the south and from the north, they both got washed out. Yeah. That's pretty unusual for that to happen. You sure. might expect to lose one but not the other. And so even as, as, the, as the cell networks were coming back online they couldn't get the broadband connections in and so that had an impact on their ability mm. to give coverage. So I think we... It's, it's difficult to make those kind of hard and fast rules. But one thing that I think, you know, on reflection, I've heard really strongly is 
uh, you know, this feedback from people, we can deal with the power being off, but when telecommunications are out at the same time, we can't even tell people that we're okay. Mm. And it just added that extra layer of stress. So they could deal with one, but not necessarily the other. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to make sure we're building something that, that builds more resilience. Back in, the, back in the old days, you know, the old copper, copper lines would still work even yeah. if the power was out. People don't have that same level of you know, connectivity mm. anymore, so we've got to make sure we've got alternatives for them. The, the Finance Minister has indicated to us that he is considering his operating allowance in this year's budget. Are you supportive of a bigger budget in order to respond to these events? I think there's no question. We're going to have to spend more money to respond to these events. It'll have an immediate budgetary effect, but also it'll it'll have a longer-term effect as well. How Some, well, if you look at the scale of the damage, you know the infrastructure damage, yeah. um, and government will be responsible for much of that. So it could sit somewhere between four to eight billion dollars are the current kind of estimates of the range that we could be dealing with just for infrastructure, and then of course you've got housing and you've got right. business on top of that. Government's going to be one of the big contributors to that because a lot of that will be things like roading right. and so on where we need to contribute. We're in a good position that we, if we need to borrow more to, to make sure we're meeting our, our contribution to that, we're able to, to do that. Yeah. That's clearly going to have a longer-term implication on the government's finances. Though. Every economist in the country is going to be screaming at the TV right now. The previous operating allowance is $4.5 Can you give us a rough estimate as to where it's likely to sit come May? Well, I'm not going to give you the budget right Don't now. Don't give us the budget. Um, just give us that number. Look, look, and that will be... And, and, and what we... Where we land on that will be announced in due course. I'm not going to Hundreds do that Hundreds of today. millions bigger? I'm, I'm not going to give you that announcement okay. today. Good, good try. All right. Thanks. Uh, stay with us. Chris Hipkins is back on Q&A after Hokimaiti, we're seven months from the election. We want to know where Chris, uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins stands on some of the most important issues of our time. An opportunity to be explicit in defining the policies and areas that he sees in, as an absolute priority for New Zealand. This is the cushiest question I'll ever give you. Why do you want to be Prime Minister? Because I think we can be a better country. I think we can do more to provide opportunity to young New Zealanders. I think we can do more to ensure that those who are working really hard can actually get ahead and can feel like they're making progress. And I know that there's a lot of people out there at the moment who don't feel that. So what, do you mean, what does that mean in terms of policies? Well, it means... Priorities that, for you. Well, I, I, one of the areas where I think, um, you know, and it, if we take it that holistically rather mm. than specific initiatives, mm. um, I want to make sure that people who are working hard and, you know, getting out there, and in some cases they might be doing multiple shifts in a day, they're actually benefiting from that, that they're actually feeling like they can get ahead, they can buy a home, they can create a better life for their kids. That's one of the goals, you know, that's, that's one of the objectives, mm. it's one of the outcomes that I want to see. And I know that, you know, I talk to some people who are on relatively low incomes, whose solution to that has been to continue to increase their hours exponentially to the point where they're just basically working when they're not asleep. I want to make sure that they're seeing some benefit from that and that they're actually able to get to the point where they don't have to work those long hours and they can actually spend time with their families and they can enjoy the quality of life that I think all mm. New Zealanders should be able to enjoy. I want to talk about China. So the US says China is considering providing arms to Russia for the war in Ukraine. Is the US intelligence credible? Sorry, what was that? The, the US says that China has been considering providing arms to Russia for the fight in Ukraine. In your opinion, is the US intelligence credible? I don't want to speculate on that because at the moment it's hypothetical. There isn't hard evidence that that has happened. Um, but in terms of New Zealand's position, we're absolutely opposed to the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, we would take a dim view of anybody who's supporting the war in Ukraine, whether it's through the provision of arms or other other means. What does that dim view mean? In well, terms of again, it, again, um, if you look at it, we have had sanctions on other countries um, where they have been supporting the war. Would in, it be appropriate if China? I mean, keep in mind that the US intelligence says. That China is considering or has been considering providing arms. 
If China chooses to arm Russia, would New Zealand consider economic sanctions against China? Again, that's a hypothetical question, um, and, I'll, and, I will, and we will deal with, with reality if that is what happens. I mean, but, this but, is the, the intelligence is real, though, from, from US officials. They've publicised it. Yeah, yeah, but as I've said, I'm not, I'm not going to... I'm not going to. It's a hypothetical at this point, and I'm not going to make our, our foreign policy based on hypotheticals. We have... We will continue to support the Ukrainian people uh, in their fight for freedom. We'll continue to condemn Russia and to condemn those who are supporting uh, that Russian aggression. A remarkable story in the Herald yesterday. A, a worker at the Chinese consulate in Auckland has become the first defector since the Cold War. Now, he's Catholic and said he would fear for his life if forced to return to China. And New Zealand agreed with that risk and granted him refugee status. How can we maintain our trading relationship with China if we believe Catholics are at serious risk in China? Um, look, I, I am very reluctant, as you'll understand, to comment on any individual case. Um, those, those decisions are made against a clear set of criteria, and I'm not the one who makes those mm. decisions. New Zealand is a country that supports freedom of religion. We're a country that values our trading relationship with China, um, but we continue to have foreign policy differences or differences mm. in policy and approach with China, and we continue to express those. Sometimes we do that publicly, and you'll see that we've made plenty of statements um, where we have disagreed with China, and sometimes we will do that privately as well. Um, we continue to be independent countries, and so we'll, you know, and, and New Zealand's foreign policy continues to be independent. Don't take this the wrong way. You are probably not going to be on the cover of Vogue. Maybe. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's about time they had a ginger on the cover. Is New Zealand's foreign policy materially worse off for not having Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister? Uh, look, Jacinda and I are very different people. Mm. I think New Zealand gained a lot from having Jacinda's, you know, significant international mm. profile. I think it was a great, it was good free marketing for New Zealand mm. as well. When she travelled abroad, you know, we got we got the kind of advertising that money can't buy, and mm. I think that was great for New Zealand, but we're clearly different people, mm. and my profile will be a little different to hers. Mm. Um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. So, so we are materially worse off, in that I, sense? I, I wouldn't necessarily say so. Look, we, we, we don't do, have we're that soft power, people. though. We're different well, we're different people. Yeah. Yeah, we're different people. We've got a different, different approach. What do you bring that she doesn't? Um, look, I don't want to compare myself to Jacinda. Well, you're think, different people. Well, we're different people. And look, Jacinda um, is a really good friend of mine, as mm. you know. Um, and she was exactly the Prime Minister we needed during COVID-19 mm. and during those really difficult circumstances. So, so what do you bring for foreign policy that Jacinda Ardern didn't? Oh, look, in terms of foreign policy, um, I'll be... A, a, you know, a rel the, the continuity of our foreign policy is, is going to be quite predictable. You know, our foreign policy hasn't changed because there is mm. a change of leader. It, it actually often doesn't change when there's a mm. change of government. Government. Actually, foreign policy is an area where in New Zealand there's often a lot of, and I think now, mm. a lot of bipartisan agreement. But you have noted that, that there was a significant soft power element that came from having Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister. You say you're different people, so what do you bring that she well, doesn't? Well, I, I mean, maybe I could frame that in terms of what are my priorities in the foreign policy space. Clearly, we're a training nation. Free, you know, trade agreements have to be right at the front of that. We've got some opportunities in the next few months mm. to lock in our, our trade agreements with the UK and with the European Union. That's right at the top of the agenda. Mm. Continuing to improve the relationship with Australia. They're our nearest neighbour, one of, our, one of, if not our most significant you know, international relationship. And I think we can continue to strengthen that. We've got the Pacific. You know, we've got a, a really important role to play mm. in the Pacific. I think the Pacific want to see more of us. They want to see us playing more of a leadership mm. role. I think we can do 
that. So those are the areas of focus for me. And, and in addition, didn't, didn't mention China. In, well, in addition to China and the ASEAN region, so making sure that you know that, that again, there's more potential for us trading in the ASEAN region, more potential for cultural exchange. In the Indo-Pacific, uh, absolutely. And if you look at where our international students are coming from, so let's move mm. beyond what we conventionally regard as trade, you know, the imports and exports, mm. and actually look at things like international education, China, um, India. Uh, right the way through the, the right. ASEAN region, real potential, real, real potential for us to, to continue the people-to-people -people exchange in those areas. Co-governance. At the moment, as the legislation stands, as non-Māori people, do you and I have exactly the same level of representation under the current Three Waters governance structure as a Māori person? If you're talking about the one that's about to come into, into effect, we have, the, we have the same, yes. How do we have the same? Well, if, if, uh, under the under the model as it exists now, it's a it's a co-governance model, so it's a shared governance mm. model, so it's a 50-50 model. Right. Uh, uh, are non-Maori and Maori 50-50 when it comes to our population? Oh, uh, I see. I see what you're saying. No, no, we don't have that at the moment. But we we we're, we are looking at that again, and we're looking. We haven't we haven't made decisions on right. what the future of that arrangement will be. If we don't have the same level of representation, is that democratic in a one-person, one-vote measure? Look, co-governance co is, is a term that I think is... is no, is, is, in the is, term. Is, is it, is it I'll, I'll come and, to the term mean, in a minute. But it means different things yeah. in different contexts. And, I, and I'll give you a good example. So there are lots of natural resources mm. um, where over a long period of time we've put co-governance arrangements in place. They're not all 50-50 relationships. Mm. Some, in some cases... The, and, 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 that, and don't always involve two parties. Right. In some cases, the co-governance model can involve a wider range of okay. stakeholders. I, I, well. I, yep, well, that's right. I'm, we're going down a we're going down a rabbit hole there. I just want to be really clear on that. Is it democratic if you and I, as non-Maori, do not have the same level of representation as Maori? Uh, look, I. I, I you're kind of dealing with a hypothetical. Do I think the three waters model is democratic? Yes, I do think it is democratic. Explain to me am, how. Am I, am I committed to keeping it exactly as it is? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not drawing a line in the sand and saying Explain it's going to, to me stay how, exactly how it's the same as it is. Well, it's, it's every every local authority will be represented there. Mm. Māori people will be represented there. It's 50, 50 50 isn't it between mana whenua and council representatives? So, 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 can I can I can I contribute to as a non-Māori person? Can I contribute to selecting? some of the Māori representatives under those re regional representative well, groups? Well, through your local authorities, you'll contribute to the representation. On the council side, yeah. yes, yes, but I can't on the mana whenua side. Uh, no, not under the current model. So that isn't democratic, is it? If, if, if one person, one vote is the measure of a democracy, which some people say it is, some people say it's more nuanced, but if that is the measure of a democracy... It cannot be democratic. Well, it's a. It's a Please a, answer that. A co-governance arrangement gives Maori a, a different a seat at the table in yes. terms of decision making. And but that is and a democratic. I would, I, and, well, I would argue that that's something that we we signed up to when the treaty was signed. hundred and well, yeah, I'm glad you, know, you brought that up. A long, but, a long, and I will ask ago. about that. But is it democratic? Well, I, I believe that the, I believe that there's nothing undemocratic about co-governance arrangements. Although we don't have the same level of representation, you would also agree. Well, if you, if you were going to if we were going to have a, a co-governed parliament, for example, that was a 50-50 parliament. That's not what I'm asking. I'm the, asking the, about the. But exact... I think well, I think it's a different situation. What we're talking about here is an advisory board that selects a board yeah. to govern the entities. Um, I I you know. We've got we've got some decisions to take on that, mm. um, but I don't think that co-governance is, is inherently undemocratic. You, you mentioned the treaty, and I think this is this is the central question that I'm hoping you can answer. You're the leader of this country, and, and New Zealanders deserve to know your position. As a matter of principle, are co-governance structures for the delivery of public services necessary to give effect 
to Titiriti or Waitangi? Not, uh, not all circumstances. There's a range of different ways we can do that. In some right. cases, we don't have co-governance. We actually have devolved responsibility. Mm. So we're basically saying to Māori, well, you can make your own decisions mm. and, and, and we will devolve that to you. That's not a co-governance arrangement. But sometimes. It's a degree of devolution. Yeah. So if you look in, and, and in different cases, different models can apply. Mm. So the Māori Health Authority, it's kind of a bit co-governance, but it's also a bit devolution. It's a bit mm. saying to Māori communities, you can make your own decisions. In education, kura kaupapa, ko hangareo, wānanga, these are entities that are basically adopting a by Māori, for Māori approach. Absolutely. And they have been fantastic. They've okay. delivered great but, but, but results. But that's different. We're talking about the delivery of public services for something like Three Waters, well, right? E education and health are public services. Okay, so, services. so can, can you choose to send a child to Kura Kaupapa? Yes, you can. Can you choose to not drink water? Uh, no, of course you mm. can't. So... Well, at the moment, people are being forced to not drink water because they can't. They can't when they turn the tap on, the water that comes out the of it is drinkable. The, the point is that the, the the comparison, the analogy, is not reasonable, is it? It's not the same thing. Um, well, I, I think it's a ridiculous analogy or a ridiculous comparison. Well, you made it. No, you can you can bed water you, to, the, you to other public services. <laughs> education, teachers are striking this week. Why didn't you reach a deal when you were education minister? Well, I did reach a deal um, when I was the Education Minister and in fact it gave teachers one of the biggest pay increases that they've had in, in quite some time. Um, we're back in negotiations now three years later um, and you know th there's always a little bit of backwards and forwards in these things. Are they going to strike do you think? Um, look I'd encourage them to go back to the negotiating table with the Ministry of Education. Will you intervene? Um, as I've said I, I encourage them to go back to the negotiating table with the Ministry of Education. You talked before about reprioritisation Obviously, we're waiting for your final plans on the, the changes around the three, uh, three waters um, policy. What else is happening on the reprioritisation front? Yeah, so we've got another reprioritisation paper that will be considered over the next week, and that will set out some further changes. Uh, across the two, the, so the, the, the last lot that we've announced and, and this lot, we've identified about a billion dollars worth of savings, so that's money that will get fed back into the budget process so that mm. it can be allocated to other more pressing priorities including the recovery effort that we've now got ahead of us and cost of living mm. related issues so there'll be some more announcements on that in the next week and then there's some more reprioritisation work that people will see through the regular budget process mm. as well. My final questions are about integrity so you know the incident with the road workers in Hawke's yep. Bay who were, who were held up that you initially disputed that was by my count the sixth occasion in recent times that you've publicly presented inaccurate information that was to your political benefit. You could probably add a seventh by that comment regarding emissions and people needing to drive at the start of this interview. But why do you keep on making these factual errors? Well, I, no, I, don't, I don't accept that I make more than any other politician, but I do accept that I'll own them more than other people. So if I get something wrong, then of course I'll own that. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll be upfront about that. Um, I, I don't have a perfect memory, nor does anybody else. So um, as a Prime Minister, every day I'll get a stack of papers that big. Um, and if you're asking me to memorise every one of them and then be able to recount any particular detail that I may have read, sometimes I'll get that wrong. Um, I'll own that. Um, mm. I, I've seen plenty of politicians over the years continue to box on forward and pretend mm. that they, haven't, they never make mistakes. I think I'm a human being, and if I get something wrong from time to time, I'll just own that. Like your predecessor, will Prime Minister Chris Hipkins commit to running a positive election campaign this year? Absolutely. I, I think New Zealand has a lot to look forward to. We, we, you know, we, we can run a positive campaign that's focused on the issues. 
there are going to be differences of opinion. There are going mm. to be disagreements. I've got no problem with debating policy and debating areas where we do disagree, but we don't need to be uh, in a sort of drag-each-other-down race to the bottom. I think we can do that in a way that lifts New Zealanders' sights to focus on what the better future should look like. Thank you very much for your time. I know how busy you are. Big gay out today, is it? It is indeed. Yeah, it'll be my first time. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be memorable. It yeah. always is. Thank you so much, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email. You can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, if you prefer. Coming up, what would a banking inquiry teach us that we don't already know? But next, the Wesley Way. A top rugby star speaks out about bullying and abuse at one of New Zealand's oldest schools. Kia ora, welcome back. Barging through defensive lines, smashing into rucks and malls, anyone who has watched Wallabies and Moana Pacifica rugby star Sekopi Kepu knows he's tough. But this morning on Q&A, you are about to see toughness of a different kind. Sekopi Kepu is speaking out about bullying and abuse he suffered at one of New Zealand's oldest schools. He spoke exclusively to Indira Stewart. Wesley College is New Zealand's oldest registered school, made famous in the 90s when late rugby legend and former student Jonah Lommel put it on the map. Three quarters of students are Pasifika, and the school has a history of shaping sports stars, Pacific Prime Ministers and two sovereign leaders. A proud history of the 180-year-old school, but one that's been clouded in allegations of abuse and secrets for decades. These buildings. On a tour of the school, we see anti-bullying posters plastered on the walls. Former student and rugby star Sekope Kepo is front and centre of the campaign. 20 years after being a student here, he remains staunchly loyal to the Wesley Brotherhood, but he's breaking a code of silence. I love the school so much and so do the students that, that, that attended Wesley, but I do not condone any of that. You know, the, the, the abuse, the, the military style, you know, the brutal beatings. Sekope is among dozens of survivors who have spoken up about abuse at the school. The school admits it's likely there are hundreds more victims. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. I do. Those who registered with the National Royal Commission of Inquiry came forward with allegations of abuse between the 1960s up to as recently as last year. When the Royal Commission approached me, um, again, I didn't realise how massive it was. And as it got closer and as it, I, I read the statements from the survivors, to actually hear and see what they were going through and um, the hurt, the trauma, the, you know, the experiences are uh, just sad that it, it happened to them and, and, and myself included. The stories predominantly detail physical, psychological and emotional abuse with some incidences of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. Most incidents involved senior students against junior students. Some staff abused students too. My parents didn't really know about this whole ordeal that I was going through at Wesley, so... Until you recently spoke? Recently, yeah. Wow. Until the Royal Commission came about. It wasn't until a phone call the night before that I actually spoke to my mum about it, and she was uh, livid, as I mentioned, in the, in the Royal Commission. Um, 
just upset and disappointed that um, she didn't know at the time. And she said that had she known, she would have um, addressed it and, and possibly pulled me out. At a public hearing, Sikope shared this experience. If I'm being honest and brutally honest about my, my, my first year at Wesley College, um, it was, it was gruelling at times. Um, and to put it in perspective, um, everyone would go to bed at night, 8.30 lights out. Um, a chip packet would, would rattle or someone would whisper. And the, the dorm prefect at the time would call out my name. Sekope, get to the middle. Sekope says he was forced to stand in the middle of the dormitory at night while everyone would sleep. He fought to stay awake because he knew the consequences could include beatings. But then it happened night after night. The night watchman would come in and he would then ask me, what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing now that you're in the middle? You're here parading by yourself. And I couldn't say anything. Sundays was the biggest dread for me coming back. Away for Kepu, Kepu! And the man of the moment, Se Kope Kepu. Years on from establishing himself as a sports star, Sekope says the memories still affect him as an adult today and wants other survivors to know they're not alone. I stand with them. I experienced the same thing. Uh, maybe not to the extent that they did. And, and I, I, my heart goes out to him. I've got young ones now, and to see my, my three boys, especially, and their vulnerabilities, and seeing the, the, the fear that they have in their faces sometimes. Um, and, you know, I, I never want to see them if, you know, ever go through what I experienced. The culture of violence has been called the Wesley Way by students for decades, but is now being challenged by survivors as a horrifying tradition. He would witness abuse not only happening to him, but to younger boys. That's lead counsel Tanya Sharkey reading a summary of survivors' testimonies at a public hearing last year. Another survivor also confirms that there were a few, there was a lot of bullying and gang bashings. There was so much physical violence, sexual and mental abuse at the school that he and other students witnessed every day. Juniors were assaulted daily. He witnessed other juniors having their fingers broken from these assaults. The school accepts what survivors have shared. It also acknowledged that for many, its apology has come decades too late. Well, we're all very sorry for what happened and we acknowledge that. It's really important that we have that in the, the forefront of our minds as we move forward. The youngest survivor heard by the inquiry reported being gang-bashed at the school just last year. The school has confirmed that approximately 10 junior students left the school last year after experiencing bullying, violence or abuse. Q&A can also confirm two more students have come forward to the school with allegations of serious physical violence within the past 12 months. It's on the decline and hopefully this year, touch wood, there'll be nothing at all. That's the hope. Um, obviously we can't control everything, uh, we can't be everywhere um, and we can't control you know, if students are influenced by others to, to uphold these old ways. Um, you know, but we, we will continue to make this place you know, positive as possible. 
Q&A received a tip-off about claims of serious concerns found at the school's hostels just last year. We were told an inspection by the Ministry of Education found senior students sleeping in the same hostel as junior students with no appropriate overnight supervision in place for all the school's hostels. We were also told students had no access to drinking water, no desks for studying and no phone line to call a staff member for assistance if needed. The school has confirmed the ministry briefly revoked its hostels licence in December last year. In a statement, Aero said it was aware of the concerns we raised and said the school had been working with the Ministry of Education to rectify any potential breaches of the education hostels regulations. The Ministry of Education also confirmed this and said after a re-inspection in January, it was now satisfied that the school had met standards to operate five of its six hostels. The sixth hostel remains shut for renovations. Acting Principal Chris Wood says previously a staff member would be sleeping in a building nearby, but now there is 24-7 overnight supervision in place with dorm parents staying inside the hostels at night. He says students can access water inside the hostel's kitchen and lounge areas and that all hostels are now furnished with desks. He said there'd always been a working phone inside the hostels that students could use to contact a staff member. Given the history of abuse uh, that has been known for decades of the school, how was that acceptable in the first place? Um, I don't think it was. Um, if, if I was a parent, I'd, I'd want, you know, I'd be... Um, I wouldn't be happy if, you know, my son or daughter was unsupervised overnight. And right. I think these current changes so, are really, really important. Wood also admitted Year 13 students were temporarily sleeping in the same dorm as Year 9 students while one dorm was being renovated. So given the allegations of abuse that have predominantly, by the school's admission, been senior students on junior students, and some of those instances of abuse include sexual abuse allegations as well, do you think it was acceptable to have unsupervised senior students sleeping in the same dorm as junior, junior students at night? Um, I think that that was absolutely fine at the time. The our Year 13 students are you know, amazing bunch of students, they're great leaders, and you know, that was carefully planned and um, like I say, it was only temporary. Do you accept that that might be a hard pill to swallow for some survivors to hear you say that? Given the current state of uh, the culture in the school, no. In the past, I can, I can see how survivors would, have, would, would react to that. Um, but given the current state of our, the, 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 the culture in the school at the moment, how really positive it is, um, if, yeah, it, it's absolutely, it would be fine. And it's safe. What assurance can you give parents today that the school is really trying to change the dark history of its past? In us, we have a new strategic plan which we've just put out, and part of a significant part of that is the positive culture that we're trying to you know, cultivate and, and grow. So we will discuss with parents you know, some of the issues that we continue to deal with, um, and I think through that constant dialogue you know, honesty and transparency, um, they will be assured that there is a way forward. About 60 parents have now signed up to an anti-bullying committee, with some parents volunteering to do daily duty monitoring around the school. Sekopa Kepo says the community needs to see the school make real change. A school that we love dearly and 
you know, there are great things that Wesley taught us. Um, but again, you know, there's, there's no place for, for this abuse and, and bullying and everything that goes with it. Indira Stewart with that report. And just so you know, you can see more of Indira's reporting on Wesley College at onenews.co.nz. After the break on Q&A, New Zealanders might be doing it tough, but our banks, eh, not so much. <laughs> As the government considers a market study, one expert questions what that would actually achieve. Kia ora koutou, welcome back. It looks increasingly likely New Zealand banks are going to be subjected to some sort of inquiry amidst renewed concern over their profit margins. The government says a Commerce Commission market study would be appropriate, while the opposition backs a select committee hearing. But what will we actually learn? Massey University Associate Professor Claire Matthews studies banking in Aotearoa and is with us this morning. Kia ora Claire, thanks for being with us. Uh, dumb question maybe, but why are Orange. banks so profitable? Well, that's a really good question, and I guess that's the point of the market study. But fundamentally, they're profitable because they're efficient, that they've done a lot of work to reduce their costs, and they manage how they operate. So they do things that are profitable um, and ensure that the costs that they incur in doing that are kept at the lowest possible level. Their profits are in the several billions of dollars range. Are New Zealand's banks too profitable? Well, that's a really hard question to answer definitively. It, it really depends on your perspective. But the, the really important thing to remember is that banks are huge organisations. So we focus very much on the $6 billion, and it's a huge number, and there's no question about that. But they've got $500 billion worth of assets. So it represents a return on their capital invested of around 11 12%, based on the most recent figures. Now, if you compare that to, and, and I, I use these examples just because they're, they're a couple of organisations I look at, at the Warehouse Group, they generated a return on, prof, on capital of about 20% in their most recent financial statements. Um, Spark, and I use Spark because a lot of the, because uh, I can't get the two degrees information and Spark's kind of the closest I can get. Uh, they had a 27% return on capital. So on that basis, what the banks are making is actually quite low. Yes, but then let's compare them to their operations in Australia. And of course, the big four banks are Australian-owned banks. So adjusted for income, the big four banks make roughly 20% more in profit off New Zealand customers than they do in Australia. How is that? Uh, arguably, they're more profitable in New Zealand because they have managed to um, manage their costs in a better way. But you've also got to remember in Australia, the Australian banks have the cost of the headquarters, the, uh, the oversight operations. So part of the way that the New Zealand banks contribute to that is through returning a dividend. And so to do that, they need to make profits in order to do that. So it, I, I don't think you necessarily compare it directly because it is a subsidiary operation and therefore mm. it does have slightly different costs. What would be more effective in, in your mind, a Commerce Commission market study or a select committee hearing? Where would we learn more? In my mind, there is absolutely no doubt that the Commerce Commission inquiry is the one that we need. If we have a select committee inquiry, it's very political and you've got politicians asking the questions, whereas if you have the Commerce Commission doing it, they can do it really thoroughly, they can use experts um, and they can do a really detailed investigation. 
this issue is if we have a select committee inquiries, it's going to be a once-over lightly and it's not really going to answer questions that we really have. So absolutely Commerce Commission inquiry. What, what would we actually learn from that inquiry in your mind? <laughs> well, again, another really good question and I'm not sure we know the answer to that. Um, in my view, I don't think we're going to learn terribly much, um, potentially. It, it really comes down to exactly what questions they ask and therefore exactly what they investigate. Uh, potentially, we could understand better exactly how the banks make their money, mm. so which parts of the market they're making money from, um, what are the costs, and also I think what would be really interesting is actually to understand how are they contributing to the New Zealand economy? Because we focus very much on the profits that they make and the fact that that goes back to Australia to a large extent. But how are they actually contributing in terms of employment, in terms of other resources mm. that they need to use, in terms of their con contribution through various sponsorship and marketing arrangements to various parts of the New Zealand economy? Uh, you've got uh, Bank of New Zealand operating with um, an organisation to make low interest loans or no interest loans to people that need them. Um, so the banks are all doing things like that, but it's not clear that we necessarily see that really well. Mm. So perhaps that's part of what the question should be asking. The, the politicians are incentivised at the moment to be seen to be giving the banks a bit of a hard time. I think it's fair to say that the banks aren't super popular as they rake in the billions from New Zealand's consumers at the moment. So why do you say that a select committee would represent a once-over lightly experience for the banks? Um... I, think, I don't think there's anything special about the moment in terms of the lack of popularity of the banks. I can mm. go back 30 or 40 years and tell you that the banks have never been popular. Um, when you work for a bank, you don't really want to go to a party and admit that. It's almost like working for the IRD. Um, but my concern with the politicians is that they're looking at point scoring. They're looking at trying to make points. And I just don't see that a select committee mm. inquiry is going to be as thorough and take as much time. One of the things with the Select Committee inquiry is that they would be looking to get it done by the time of the election, and the reality is that if you're going to do a proper inquiry, it's going to take time, and I don't think we can expect to have it done that quickly. Is there enough competition in the New Zealand banking sector? Well, given the number of banks that operate here, it's really hard to argue that there's not a lack of competition. Um, or, to, sorry, to argue that there is a lack of competition. And, and you've got, for example, if people really dislike the Australian banks, then they've got some alternatives. You've got Kiwi Bank, you've got SBS Bank, you've got the Cooperative Bank, and you've got TSB Bank. So you've got four New Zealand-owned banks that if you don't like the Australian-owned banks that you've got the option of going to, and there are other non-bank financial institutions that you can operate with as well. The other thing that actually has come out recently in the media that actually suggests a level of competition is the backroom deals that they've been talking about for at least BNZ and ASB, I think it is, talking about the deals that new customers can get but that they're not publicising. Now, the only reason they're doing that is to compete. If they didn't, weren't competing, why on earth would they need to do that? Would an inquiry potentially be embarrassing for government policy or for the Reserve Bank? Uh, well, I guess potentially it could be embarrassing for the Reserve Bank more than the government. Um, if it showed something that the Reserve Bank hasn't been doing that it could have been doing. But it's hard to see that that would be likely to happen, but it's always a possibility. Banks need to build capital at the moment, particularly with a downturn likely on the way. 
But are profits that banks are making genuinely going into strengthening capital positions, or to what extent are they doing that versus simply returning dividends for shareholders? Uh, I can't answer that question directly, but certainly some of their profits are going back to their parent bank as in the way of a dividend. I mean, that's why the parent bank has them, because they mm. want some money going back to them. But some of it has to go into capital because the banks can't continue to grow if they don't increase their capital. And unless they get additional capital from their parent, then the only way to increase their capital levels is by the profits that they make. So they definitely need it in order to keep growing, and we're seeing them continue to grow. So that's definitely is happening to an extent. Theoretically, what changes in policy could a government make in the future that would really impact the profits that banks are making? Um, that, that's a really difficult question. I'm not sure what could really impact the profits um, because it all depends what happens. There's a chance that whatever the banks do, sorry, whatever the government does to require banks to spend more in terms mm. of their operations in New Zealand are likely to be passed on to their customers, in which case their profits won't actually change. Um, one of the things the banks, the, sorry, the government could do to assist in terms of creating a more open banking environment and a more obviously competitive environment would be to require the banks to introduce number portability for your bank account numbers. Right. We have that in the telecommunications sector. If you have an and I'll just use this as an example. If you have an 021 telephone number, it used to be that you knew that that was a Vodafone customer. These days, it could be with Spark, it could be with Two Degrees, or it might still be with Vodafone. What we need is the same with our bank account numbers. So currently, 03, you know it's a Westpac account. Mm. If it's an 02, you know it's a BNZ account. What we need is that if you change from Westpac to BNZ, you don't need to change your bank account number. Mm. You take your bank account number with you, and therefore the perception of how easy it is to change banks increases. At the moment, it really is quite easy to change bank, but there's a perception mm. among, for people that it's quite difficult. So anything the banks, the government can do to simplify that um, is, is what needs to be done. And I've been told in the past that technologically it's possible to have number portability, it would be complex and it would be expensive. Mm. But if the government really wants to do something, that is something tangible that they could do that would actually have uh, an impact that would be obvious. Finally, the Green Party has renewed its calls for a windfall tax that would potentially affect the banks. If a windfall tax was introduced in order to try and pay for the damage from Cyclone Gabrielle, would the banks pay it? or would they be able to avoid it? Um, I think they would probably pay it because from a perception perspective, they um, tend to ensure that they pay whatever they have to pay. But the question is, why should the banks be targeted? If you've got other organisations that are also making windfall profits, um, then why wouldn't you not target them all? Mm. But also, how do you define windfall profits? And is a big question to make to answer and then the other issue is if in two or three years time we've had a recession and the banks are starting to have the impact on that because it takes a couple of years after mm. the recession before the banks actually feel the effects and they have losses are they going to get some of those windfall taxes back because that's part of the reason that they make um, profits is to get them through the bad times and we've seen banks do fail there's been a bank failure in the US just in the last couple of days mm. the second largest bank failure in the last 15 years so yeah. banks do fail, we have to remember that, and the risk is if you take those attacks, the, what's seen as the windfall profits, mm. is that you will actually 
then almost have a liability to uh, compensate the banks when they have difficult times. Well, I, f I think many governments, particularly the US government, feels that liability all the same. Last I checked, they have been bailing out banks in the past. Thank you so much, Claire. We really appreciate your time. That is Associate Professor Claire Matthews. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. Nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hei te rāwiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.